Hello there, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and with me in the co-host seat today is Brad Davis. Say hi to the folks, Brad. Hey, everybody. Good to be with you, Joe. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for jumping in here today, Brad. Um, so for those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast, uh, you're used to hearing Brandon Wood uh, as, as the regular co-host. Um, Brandon's having to take a little pause from the podcast for a little while as he sorts out some things with um, with the job that he gets paid to do. Uh, and so we certainly, you know, give him uh, that time and space to sort all of that out. But Brad, um, welcome uh, to the co-host chair and uh, and thanks for being here. We've got a good one for the folks here today. We do. And uh, I'm, I'm feeling mighty big shoes. So uh, I, I hope I do an adequate job with that. But yeah, you're right. We've got an exciting, great show uh, today. Uh, Mr. Josh Scott, uh, the pastor at Grace Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, from, from my neck of the woods, uh, he, he's a Pike County, Kentucky boy, which is right next to Mingo County, West Virginia, where I grew up. We're from the same community. Uh, so, and we had a great time, great conversation. Yeah, I think I think folks are really going to like this. Before we jump into the episode, just want to remind everybody that um, you can get all of the content that we're putting out uh, for the Accidental Tomatoes community at our website. That's accidentaltomatoes.com where not only can you find every episode of the podcast there, but uh, every other week we also put out a blog. Brad uh, is one of the writers that um, puts some excellent pieces out on that blog, in addition to our friends Jenny Williams and Heather Moore. Um, and we're, uh, we're, we're now featuring some curated content um, every week there. So if you want to get connected with the Accidental Tomatoes community, accidentaltomatoes.com is the place to go for that. So, uh, Brad, I think we ought to let folks um, hear what Josh has to say. What do you think? Uh, yeah, because it needs to be heard. He's I got a lot does. to say, and, and we all need to hear it. I, th- I, th- I think you're right. So, please give a warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to Josh Scott. It's Jesus saying, I'm opting out of a system, and I'm going to form communities of people who are opting out of a system. And if enough of us opt out of the system then we'll starve the beast. I I think he's actually starting an anti-empire movement, but he's not just saying, let's let's thumb thumb our noses up the empire. He's saying, and we're gonna start these communities where everybody's equal and everybody belongs and everybody brings what they have and they share it. And we'll keep a roof over one another's head and we'll keep food on the table and we will create an alternative society within the toxic empire. It's it's absolutely beautiful, and it's also super controversial, and might lead one to a cross. So, welcome, friends, to another edition of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I've um, got a really exciting guest for us today. Um, Josh Scott from Grace Point Church in Nashville is our guest today, and uh, we've got we've got somebody else in the co-host seat here today. Um, my friend Brad Davis. Uh, Brad is one of our regular contributors to the Accidental Tomatoes website. He's been a guest on the podcast oh, a couple couple three times. Brad, you've been uh, you've been with us here, so welcome. Glad to have you um, in the co-host seat today, my friend. Glad to be with you, Joe. Glad to be with everyone. And uh, I will try my best to uh, do Brandon's job today. 
it's it's big shoes to <laughs> fill, but uh, I'm sure I'm sure you're up to it. I'm sure you're up to it. So uh, so our guest today, I said, like I said, is uh, Josh Scott. Josh is the lead pastor at Grace Point uh, Church in Nashville. Welcome, Josh. So glad to have you here on the podcast. Why don't you um, tell the folks a little bit about who you are, what your story is, and then we'll kind of dive in from there. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, so yeah, I've been a pastor for, well, I've been a preacher for about the last 25 years, been a pastor for the last 20 or so, um, and I'm originally from the East Kentucky, West Virginia border area of Williamson, West Virginia, Belfry, Kentucky, and so I feel very at home amongst this wonderful, illustrious company. <laughs> from up the holler, yeah. That's right. We got, we, we, we got two Coalfield boys in, in this, on, on the same podcast, on the same episode. Episode. You can't it's, go wrong with that. It's this rare. Is going to be your best episode ever. <laughs> it's rare as a native West Virginian. It's really rare for me to feel like the city boy in a. <laughs> um, but but y'all y'all uh, might have me. Um, although I think Josh might qualify now in his in his current life. So Josh, um, just by way of a little bit of background, um, tell us a little bit about Grace Point. Um, because and I'm, the reason I want to bring that up is you all are kind of unique um, as like a large progressive um, congregation. Um, and so, like, how did that come about, and how did you come to to be pastoring there at Grace Point? Yeah, well, I think calling us large would be really generous by <laughs> mega church standards. But um, Grace Point is a progressive Christian church, and um, that's that sort of designation evolves for Grace Point over the years. Um, lots of conversations, lots of uh, people would use the language probably of deconstruction in the community. Um, a big step for Grace Point was in 2015 when they uh, came out as an affirming congregation, when they made the announcement that they were fully affirming, um, which then led them to continue doing a lot of the work of wrestling with theology and all of that. Um, I came to Grace Point in, on Easter of 2019. Uh, I'd been in a church in rural Kentucky that I'd led through a similar journey of being sort of your typical non-denominational conservative, you know, uh, modern music, but really conservative theology. Uh, I'd led that church through that sort of process of becoming a progressive community. And then um, I was there 14 years. I don't know if I said that. And then Grace Point came calling in 2019, and I've been there almost Three three years in just a couple months that I've been at Grace Point. It's just it's been a terrific fit for me, and I'm really enjoying what I get to do in the world. Yeah, I was just going to just for a point of clarity, when you say Grace Point is a progressive Christian church, as in Disciples of Christ denomination. No, uh, okay, no, just as in we're Jesus following. People. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're non-denominational. Yeah. And I, and I think maybe sort of the, the natural follow-up question to that is how, how exactly do you define progressive Christianity? Cause I think, you know, that, I, that might be a whole <laughs> like conversation uh, uh, to itself, but you know, um, <clears throat> how do you, how do you all as a community define that? I guess. I think that's the question. How do we do it? Because um, one of the things I've found is, you know, there's no such thing as Christianity. There are only Christianities. Um, and even with, even within denominations, depending on where you, where, how you slice the pie, 
you're going to end up with people who see things differently and would approach things differently. So for me, um, and I just did a sermon on this a couple of weeks ago at Grace Point, when we, when we talk about, when I say the phrase progressive Christian, what I'm talking about, um, before we get in, you know, without even getting into any of the specifics, is just this approach to faith that is always unfolding, that's always evolving, that is open, that um, is growing. And so uh, it's sort of like one of the ways I describe it is uh, one of my big problems with creeds and doctrinal doctrines and dogmas is that they're, they're sort of like taking a snapshot in the moment, right? Like every day my phone gives me some suggestions of like a walk down memory lane photograph wise. And I'll see these great photos of my kids when they were, you know, tiny or two years old or learning to walk or making a mess when they were learning to feed themselves. They still make a mess when they feed themselves, but this at least was excusable back then. Um, and it, it, to me, you know, creeds and doctrine and dogmas end up when we get so attached to them ends up would be like me saying, Hey, look at this picture of my kid when they were two, this fully captures who they are. Mm. This captures their essence. It captures the totality of their personality. This is who they are. But the problem is now one of those people who were two is now 12 and has evolved and grown over time. And if I take pictures of him now, he's going to be different in, you know, three years, four years, five years, probably a year. And so progressive Christianity is essentially saying we just got to keep taking pictures. Um, and, and really what we're trying to make here is a flip book, <laughs> not, yeah. not just a not just a frozen in time shot. So it, it is we're always open to learning and growing. Um, with this understanding that, you know, when John's Jesus says, I have more to teach you, but you can't bear it now. I assume that's true for always. Um, Mm. There's always more to teach us. There's always more to learn. And our job, I think, is to be open and to be inquisitive and curious um, to, to where, you know, whatever language people want to use, where the spirit is going, like what, what, whatever, what we're being taught, what we're learning, what we're discovering. So that's what I would say. Progressive Christianity it doesn't end with a period. It ends with an ellipsis, mm. um, if that makes sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. I, I love it. I love Our it. Our United Church of Christ friends like to say, never never place a period where God puts a comma. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, love, I love that um, notion, the idea of a picture book, uh, of a photo album. Uh, the, showing the progression of our faith, which, which leads me to ask uh, Josh about your own personal faith picture book, uh, because I, I'm interested in knowing how, you know, you and I grew up in the same area, uh, probably, you know, give or take less than a couple of miles away from each other, most likely. Yeah. Um, so it's a very, very theologically conservative area. Uh, so, so tell me a little bit about your journey uh, into progressive Christianity. Ooh, that's quite the story. Um, let me say this real quick, though. You, the idea of that album, um, and and people often, I think, have the perspective that progressive Christians don't care about the past. That's mm, not true. Yeah. It would be like me saying, "I just took a new picture of my kids. I'm going to throw away every other picture I have of them." Well, that'd be crazy. Partly because it, I want to see their development over time. Even though I don't freeze them at three years old, I want to see where they were when they were three years old. That matters. And we honor that moment. And so I love that idea of an album, too. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the easiest way to say it is I began 
my faith began unraveling at the age of 11. Um, and it was my, my, I lost two people who were very close to me within a few months of each other. One was my great grandmother. Uh, her, we actually lost her 29 years ago this past week. And then her son, my grandpa, who was, he was my person in the world. He was a free will Baptist preacher. I grew up free will Baptist. Um, uh, after he passed, we went liberal and became Southern Baptist. That kind of tells you, which I'm sure, Man. you know, Brad, you understand the free will Baptist thing, just being from that area. But a lot of people Absolutely. don't understand, don't understand Appalachian free will Baptists. Um, but he, he passed away in a church business meeting. And he passed away in a church business meeting right after somebody told him that he was the problem and he should leave. Um, mm -hmm. He had a massive heart attack and died. Now, at 40 years old, I can look back on that and tell you that is a really, really, really unfortunate coincidence. Um, but at 11, when the sacred canopy under which I lived taught me that God controlled everything and that everything was God's decision when you're born and when you die and everything you do in between. Unless you're doing the wrong thing, then somehow we give God a pass on that. But generally, everything about your life is controlled. Um, that I didn't know what to do with that. And so I just decided, you know, I didn't have the courage to be an atheist. But I definitely thought that whatever God existed was kind of a jerk. Um, but eventually ended up, you know, going to the Southern Baptist Church with a great youth group. and got sucked back in. And at the age of 16, 17, preached my first sermon. And then got on the preaching circuit and was preaching up every holler and nook and cranny I could find my way into. Had some really looking back on them now, they're hilariously terrible experiences. Uh, but I'm, <laughs> I'm so grateful for them. Like, unless you've really reached the height of public speaking humiliation, how can you ever appreciate when things are going halfway good? Um, and it came back around and visited me again in my early 20s when I'd been preaching for you know several years then and was just really uncomfortable with a lot of what I was saying. Because I kept thinking, like, this isn't actually very good. Like, there's a lot that's not good about this, but I'm stuck. I don't know. And then somebody gave me a DVD produced by a guy named Rob Bell. It was called Enuma. Yeah. Um, and I watched it, and it was like, oh, my goodness. There's a whole world I was unaware of. And from there, you know, started listening to Rob's sermons, started reading it. You know, he didn't have a book out at the time, but he started recommending people in his sermons like Brian McLaren and Marcus Borg and some of those folks. And I was just down, whatever, whatever the pill is in the matrix that you like open wise, eyes wide open. I, was like, Red pill, blue pill. I took whatever that pill was and was down a rabbit hole. And the Rob no Bell pill. Back. Yeah. Yeah. The Rob <laughs> Bell pill. <laughs> that's, that's so interesting that, because I think there's a lot of us that, that probably have sort of a similar track, you know, um, I was uh, a youth group leader. My kids were teenagers when the NUMA videos were becoming popular. And, you know, that was, I was tr doing all, I had kind of wandered away from church for a long time and really wandered back in just for my kids sake and got involved as a youth leader because my kids were in the youth group and I had the time to do it um, because I was a, a freelancer working at home and, you know, just had, had time on my hands. But yeah, those things kind of started to open my eyes. And, and all I was trying to do was stay one step ahead of these teenagers that I was trying to teach. And so when, when, when Rob Bell sort of entered my, um, circle of influence there and, and then, yeah, that it was, you know, uh, Brian McLaren, um, 
uh, Richard Rohr, you know, I, I just, I started reading the footnotes in, uh, Velvet Elvis, you know, yeah. and, and seeing, you know, who, who is influencing Rob Bell's thought? Those are the people I want to read. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting how, how that starts out. And, you know, there's one hilarious footnote in Velvet Elvis that I wonder if it's in later editions where Rob says, go read everything John Piper's ever written. <laughs> <laughs> like looking back, I, on I feel all, like I've seen that, but now looking back on it, I'm like, oh no, no, no! no. <laughs> like little did he know, in less than a decade, John Piper was going to farewell him. And uh, wow, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting to look at, and, and I think this is relevant to our conversation too, though, to look at how um, progressive Christianity has evolved. Um, you know, e- even though it's, I want to be really careful to not paint it as being monolithic. You know like everything else, it's got a lot of nuances and a lot of flavors. And, but just to look to, you know, even at a, at a person like Rob Bell, where he was with his theology 15, you know, 20 years ago, maybe. Yep. Um, and, and where he is now, like if you listen to his Robcast now, like he's, he's evolved, he's not stuck. Um, and I, to me, anyhow, I think that's, that's kind of one of the hallmarks of progressive Christianity. And it speaks to your, you know, the metaphor of the the flip book or the photo album is it's committed to not being stuck in one place. It's very committed to being open to, to growth and exploration and new ideas and uh, evolution even to to invoke a, a very um, you know, unpopular word in uh, evangelical circles, right? Yeah, yeah I think that's a, a 100% true. And it's not just evolution for the sake of evolution. It's not I'm bored on a Tuesday. I'm going to change my faith. I mean, most of yeah. us who entered into this journey, and, and, and we can talk some more about the whole deconstruction idea, but people who enter that sort of journey aren't like doing it on purpose. They aren't doing it intentionally. Nobody's choosing it. You don't wake up and say, you know what? I'm going to choose to sh- like have my faith wrecked and all the relationships I'm going to lose, the per- perhaps for people, the, those of us in ministry, I'm going to lose my paycheck. I'm going to, I'm just going to give everything up because I just want to change things. That's actually not how this works. You, yeah. It's usually based on, you know, it's based on experience. It's you have a moment where you encounter a human being that explodes your categories. The people you were taught to exclude, you can no longer exclude. Or the scripture you were taught was black and white suddenly is all this, all in all sorts of shades of gray. And, you know, there, there's just so much that happens that pulls us into that journey. And so it's, it's not like, uh, you know, nobody wakes up and says, Hey, I'm going to wreck my faith today. It's something that finds you. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. For just to, to dovetail off of that. Yeah. For, for me, uh, you know, it, it was that, that mind exploding moment of, you know, seeing a world beyond, uh, the theology that we grew up with and the theology that we were taught was like reading folks like, you know, Dr. James Cone and, and, and mm-hmm. folks like Richard Rohr. Uh, yeah, it, it really opens up just, just a whole new world. Uh, and, and, and it's, you know, we are in the season of epiphany for those of us that follow uh, the, the liturgical calendar uh, that those are those moments of signs that that point us to a deeper meaning and a deeper relationship with God. Mm, Good stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, one of the things that did it for me was um, uh, 
was around 2008 or nine when that book Unchristian came out that was based on the, the Barna group research, right? Into, um, the, the religious uh, opinions of, um, essentially of millennials, right? We, I don't even know that we had that term at that time, um, for that generation, but you know, I read that book and, and my kids were teenagers at the time or, or, or maybe just a little bit preteen. And, um, you know, thinking to myself, like, why does, why does the culture think of us like this? Um, and realizing like, it's not their fault. It's our fault, right? They're, we need to look in a mirror here and then looking around me at the, at the institution of the church and, and seeing how everybody was reading that book and they were all trying to blame the culture rather than sort of accept their own uh, culpability in, in that. Right. Um, so yeah, that for me was a massive turning point to start thinking what's what's wrong with our i guess with our theology that makes us think um that we're we're not responsible for this cultural shift in some ways now it's so easy to cry the culture is hostile to our religion but maybe the question should be what is our religion doing that's creating hostility from those outside yeah. um maybe maybe there's a, a sort of a, a moment to take account of uh, what do they say? Like, if you find yourself in a situation where this one thing keeps coming, like keeps happening, maybe it, just pause and look in the mirror at some point. Um, yeah. And, and maybe what you'll see be revelatory. It's, it, you know, one of the things I was thinking, like that book, it's one of those things that it could have been life giving to the church in the sense that it could have opened people's eyes and said, we need to do things differently. But instead yeah. it was, this is not what we want to hear. The, the crowd who doesn't want to be told what they want to hear actually does want to be told what they want to hear. And that is that everything you're doing is right. And you're the victim of persecution. When the reality is actually you've been persecuting everybody and anybody who won't fall in line with your way of thinking. Um, and people are getting tired of it and they're, they're pushing back. So this is not a culture that's hostile to Christianity. It's a culture that increasingly no longer wants to tolerate bigotry and bias hatefulness and exclusive theology and i don't blame them i don't want to tolerate that stuff anymore either i think it's i think it's detrimental to humanity mm, yeah uh, i think a, a culture really that is yearning for a theology of wholeness right uh, of of healing and wholeness which is really the the biblical definition of salvation uh and redemption, which is not the theology, uh, for the most part, the, the theology that has been presented, at least in the last 100 plus years or so, in the American church. That's right. You know, the way I frame it now is my hermeneutic is human flourishing. Yes. That, that's, that's how I'm approaching it. If, if I bump up against something, that doesn't lead to the flourishing of all human beings, not just those who hold a certain religious label, not just people. Who, if I, if it doesn't lead to the flourishing of all human beings, then this journey I'm on, whatever that piece of it is, doesn't get to make the trip with me because we, we no longer need things that don't lead to the flourishing of humanity. Hmm. That's um that's a really good segue to, to what I kind of want to ask you about next, because you know, there, 
like you said, there there is sort of this evolution. You just don't wake up someday and say, I'm going to throw everything away and start over again. Um, we kind of grow into that. Um, there's some deep theological rooting uh, or rootedness, I guess, in that. And, and, you know, one of the one of the kind of popular sayings is, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm I take the Bible too seriously to take it literally. Right. Or something along those lines. And <clears throat> the first time I became aware of you, Josh, was at Wild Goose Festival um, this past year. And um, you were you were given a talk on um, the story of uh, Jesus's parable of the wedding feast. And, and, and you, you interpreted that in a way that I'd never heard anyone interpret it before. Um, which, which really led me down this whole new, um, way of theological thinking. Um, so I, I guess, um, if you could unpack a little bit of the theology behind, right, your, your view of what it means to be a progressive Christian, and especially in terms of like the, the, the cultural realities in, in the time of the New Testament writing, and and how that um, kind of shapes that hermeneutic of of human flourishing. Real, real quickly, real quickly, Josh, I just want to say I, I listened to that sermon yesterday and it has forced me to go back into the lab and rethink my sermon for this week. <laughs> so, just so well, you know. Like, you know, honestly, I think as, as a preacher, you'll agree. Like what I what I hope my sermons do is not leave people at the end going, okay, that's it. It's leaving people going, oh, well now I have to go think about that. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. leads to pull that thread, and now I have to go think about that. Like I, I actually just really want to leave people with, I don't know. Okay, now go do something with it. Um, and you know, this has been the interesting thing is, um, I I've been you know I've been in progressive Christian circles doing the reading, you know, preaching from that lens for 15 years or so now. And what is so fascinating to me is it continues to change and I continue to be pushed. And one of the places I've been pushed most recently is with Jesus, um, which is pretty central to the whole thing. But I, I actually think Jesus was doing something that we miss. And I have missed it because of just the, the spot I occupy in the world, which is definitely a spot of privilege. Right. Um, right. And so it becomes, you know, it becomes a challenge to really read the, it becomes an impediment, a barrier to reading the Jesus stories because I always want to interpret it in the way that most is most comforting to me and, and most makes me the hero in the story. Um, and so where I've, what I've found is I think that in most of the stories about money, for example, um, we have misread the character of Jesus in those stories. Um, and there are three that it really um, I think about all the time now. And, and it, like, you've made a terrible mistake by giving me the opportunity to talk about them because this <laughs> like, terrible mistake, you need to rethink your life choices after this, because um, the, the, I think they actually become, if, if I have, if I'm remotely onto something in the way I'm learning to read these stories, you have to rethink the entire Jesus story. And let yeah. me, let me just, you know, so I want to talk about, I'll mention the wedding party, but a couple other ones, for example, you know, the story of the widow's mite, pretty, pretty commonly known story. That story often gets dragged up when we're trying to do building campaigns where we're talking about equal sacrifice, not equal gifts, you know, because this woman gives away the last bit she has and Jesus stops and draws attention to her and praises her. But 
the only way we can read it that way is, and I was taught to read the Bible non-contextually. You know, it's a story here, a story there. It's a, it's a smorgasbord's buffet. But if you back up just a little bit before that story, Jesus gives this warning, beware of certain religious leadership because they devour widows' houses. And then you have this widow putting in her last two cents. I actually don't think Jesus is praising her. I think he's condemning a system that would take away all she has to live on. And he's saying, look at us, look at this system that will send her into abject poverty when they don't need her money anyway. Look at the rich. They're dumping in all of this stuff out of their abundance. They don't need what she has to offer, but look at, and then you come to the story of like the parable of the talents, right? Where the story has traditionally been read. Jesus, the, 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 the character in the story who buries the talent and does nothing with it because this person knows that the master is, is hard and difficult and reaps where he hasn't sown. That person is condemned and thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the way that story has always been interpreted in my world has been, well, you know, clearly that story is talking about if you don't use your talent and what God has given you, you're going to lose it. And God's going to be very disappointed in you. And you may even get like growing up free old Baptist when you were never sure about your salvation, you may even go to hell. Uh, this is serious business. When in Luke, that story takes place, and the Matthew is the commonly known one, but in Luke, the story takes place as they're going into Jerusalem and they expect Jesus to be the king. They, it says they expect the kingdom of God to come at once. And Jesus tells that story. And I think we've misread the story. God is not like a harsh landowner who just takes what God wants. That's not what God is like. And then you have God being angry because this person, the third servant, doesn't put the money on loan to get interest when in, taking interest was against the Torah. Jesus is not going to be advocating for that. I, I think we've misread this. I think what Jesus is saying is in this story, they're expecting the kingdom of God to come at once. And Jesus says, here's how, listen, you don't understand. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to lead a protest. And that protest, because in Jesus world, religion, economics, and politics could not be separated. I'm going to lead an economic protest. And as a result of my economic protest, I'm going to be thrown out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You think the kingdom of God is going to come at once, that the kingdom of God is not going to come uh, without trouble, without difficulty, without body broken and blood poured. And then you come to the wedding party, right? Where the person in the wedding party who doesn't have on the proper garment gets thrown out. Um, and I, you know, I can imagine this being preached, you know, in the hollers I grew up in as if you don't dress right for church, mm. you know, yeah, but, but what we don't, what we didn't know was that in a wedding feast like that, the garment would have been provided. Yeah. So this is this is, I think the the third the person in this wedding party who refuses the dress code is Jesus, who's saying, "I refuse to play party to a system that's killing people." You know. So for me, the Jesus story has become a story about economic protest. It's become a story about. A, a, which means a religious protest, which means a, a political protest. It's Jesus saying, I'm opting out of a system and I'm going to form communities of people who are opting out of a system. And if enough of us opt out of the system, then we'll starve the beast. Mm. Right. And it's brilliant. Like every time he's asked about money, like, Hey, do you pay taxes? He's like, I don't know. I don't have one of those coins. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like you have something that belongs. Like, seriously, I don't think Jesus is telling, saying, yeah, I, I think I should pay tax. I think what he's saying is, I don't carry that stuff. How can I give it to Caesar? I had none. But you carry Caesar's coin, so you're on the hook. 
I, I think he's actually starting a, a an anti empire movement, but he's not just saying let's let's thumb you know thumb our noses up the empire. He's saying, and we're going to start these communities where everybody's equal and everybody belongs, and everybody brings what they have and they share it, and we'll keep a roof over one another's head and we'll keep food on the table, and we will create an alternative society within the toxic empire. It's it's absolutely beautiful, and it's also super controversial, and might lead one to a cross. Absolutely. Speaking it sounds of, like some holler gospel there, Brad. Yeah, amen. <laughs> Speaking of leading one to a cross, equate what you just profoundly and exceptionally laid out for us. Equate that with the notion of being saved from sin. And, well, and what and what that means in the context that, that you just laid out for us. Well, Brad, you've made a terrible decision here to get me to talk about sin because it's another topic <laughs> I think is just fascinating in the Bible. Um, Brad, we are making the worst life choices in this interview. I, I, I'm good at making <laughs> bad decisions. It's okay. Me too. Me too. I'm great. Well, you know, do you know where sin first appears in the Bible? When I ask that question, everybody always says Genesis 3. What's interesting, the word sin does not appear in Genesis 3. The word sin first appears in Genesis 4 in the context of Cain wanting to kill his brother Abel. And then the spiral of violence unravels and leads to the flood, which begins with God saw the violence on earth. And it's almost like from the very beginning through the first six chapters of Genesis, we have a flood of human violence that is threatening to undo all of God's good creation. I, I think sin has to be understood within that paradigm of, of sin. I, you know, the way I've come to understand sin, sin is, is it's the stuff we do that harms and dehumanizes another. Mm. Right. Um, so I think sin very much um, sin and salvation. I'm trying to remember the exact question because I got so excited. Give me, give me the question again, because now I have the information in my head. No, how did this, our concept of salvation from sin relates to Jesus as a protest movement against the universe? Yes. Well, I think when, when you have, you know, 7 billion people on the planet, far too many human beings starving to death, and our planet can also produce enough food right now for 10 billion people, you have sin. When you have a worsening ecological crisis and people who like, I, I you know, I always tell people I, I went to college on environmental degradation. Uh, I come from a family of coal miners and railroaders. But when you create that, when, when you no longer care about the environment and you're, you're polluting it and, and killing it for future generations, I think that's sin. Sin is whatever gets in the way of human flourishing. Right? It's what we do to one another. It's how we behave subhumanly to one another. And so to say, you know, did, did, you, did Jesus die for our sins? Did God need to kill Jesus to make us acceptable to God? I don't believe so. But I believe Jesus died very literally because of sin, because of human sin, because of human injustice, because of human violence, because of a rejection of humanity. I mean, what, what Rome did when it nailed people to crosses was a rejection of basic humanity. And so I, I think sin very much is what Jesus is protesting, that some people are, are, I mean, look at what happened over the past couple of years. We had a global pandemic where so many people have died. So many people lost their income. 
so many people lost greatly and the billionaires in America got richer and richer and richer. Tell me we don't have a system based upon sin. When you have a system based on one person doing well at the expense of another, that is not human flourishing. Which is all forms of violence. Forms of, yeah, people think violence is only when you punch somebody else, but there's rhetorical violence. There's using, there's using words in specific ways. I mean, January 6th, anybody words in specific ways to incite people into doing things. And then there's just systems that are set up to harm other people. Um, yeah. That really gives a, a completely new angle, a new perspective to view the atonement, right? Uh, Jesus on the cross. Uh, and I can't remember the author that, that, that mentions it, but, but he, he likens it to uh, Jesus on the cross is absorbing the violence of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so what I mean, people think progressive Christians are just getting rid of everything. No, we're not. Sin is very much part of my vocabulary. It's, it's just what I want to say is it's just way worse than you think. Yeah, like right. you think sin's bad, it's way worse than you think. Yeah. Um, and the, so which means good news. The good news is that we don't have to live that way. We can live differently. We can follow this example in Jesus and we can live amongst one another in a just and generous and compassionate way that would actually change the world. I, when people talk about the, the market, well, the market's doing this and the market's doing that. I'm like, but didn't we make that? Didn't we create the market? Mm-hmm. And now it's dictating to us how we'll live. Yeah. It seems like it yeah. should be the other way around. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and right. Say, you, know, that, yeah. <laughs> that, um, you know, it, for me, all of this stuff almost always comes back to the Sermon on the Mount and, and all of the ways that we've misused that. Um, as a weapon, you know, to kind of try to control people's behavior um, instead of to, to point out this flawed human system that, um, that robs people of their dignity and their worth and their value um, just so someone else can prosper, right? Um, so, yeah, Brad, Brad and I were talking um, yesterday as we were kind of, you know, thinking about what we wanted to, to talk about in the, the podcast here today of, um, this, this whole idea of Jesus as organizer, you know, the, the gospel text in the lectionary this week is the story from Luke five about, you know, when Jesus gets in Peter's boat, you know, to preach a sermon on the shores of Galilee and tells Peter to, you know, cast his net after, after he got skunked fishing all night, you know, cast your net. They bring in this, you know, miraculous haul of fish. And Peter walks away from his livelihood and James and John walk away from their livelihoods to follow Jesus. And we, we tend, we so over spiritualize that story in the same way we over spiritualize almost all of the Bible, I think. But, you know, just here, Jesus, Jesus does a magic trick that convinces Peter and John and James to, to change the course of their lives, you know, and, and we focus on the magic trick. Um, but you know, Brad was pointing out to me yesterday as we were talking about this and, and he, in the, in the wake of listening to your sermon, you know, Brad kind of pointed out like, what if what Jesus is really doing is, is pointing out the sin of the system 
And when, when Peter comes and I'm going to, I'm going to steal Brad's words, but when, when Peter comes to Jesus and says, I'm a sinner, it's that realization that I've been participating in this exploitative <laughs> system. Right. Yeah. What, what Zacchaeus, right? Yeah. Zacchaeus. Yeah. Yeah. If I've, if I've, if I've mis, mistreated anyone, I'll get, I'll pay back four times the amount. Yeah. 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 And think about too. think about the feeding of the 5,000. What is that if not community organizing? If everybody yeah. sits down in small groups and everybody opens up the basket they brought, then there'll probably be enough for everybody. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's been right there in front of our noses. We've just been incentivized to read the text differently because if you spiritualize it, it doesn't challenge the way the world works. It goes back and you will understand this Josh being from the neck of the woods that we are from. It gets back to the, the whole company church construct, right? And, and the, the company theology that is meant to keep you in line and not rock the boat. Right. Yep. Yep. And I even think, you know, just to throw one more log on the fire, I even think that some of what, you know, the, the idea of demonic possession in the New Testament, for example, when Jesus, like if you go back and read most of those stories, I think what actually is being taught is that the empire is making people sick. Like go back to the story of Legion. The empire is making us sick. Jesus is going to help us rid ourselves of the empire. How? Is Jesus going to, you know, walk Rome to the shore and say, get on your boats and leave? No. He's going to teach us how to live differently in the midst of Rome. He, he's going to exercise the demon of the, the demonic hold empire has on us. And we're going to live a more human life together. Yes. Mm. We're going to get into a preaching session now. Yeah. y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Told you this was dangerous. Yeah. And, 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 and the, you know, the, the, the first century hearers of that story, when when the demon says that its name is Legion, those folks know exactly what they're what what's being said there at that point. Yeah. Home, right. So, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and the whole that whole story, I, I did a sermon on that um, last summer at Grace Point. That whole story is replete with images that would have been vivid, like 3D pop up book for the first readers of that story. Um, and the problem is when you get so many layers of both time and history, but then so many layers of privilege and all of that, it just becomes really hard and t- unless you're willing to do the difficult work of saying, okay, we got, I got to, we got to dig into the culture and the context and, you know, but growing up, you know, I, I actually thought those stories took place on Pond Creek where I, where I grew up. And I just assumed that's, Nobody, you know, Jesus spoke King James English and yeah, and we read the King James because if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. And it's just far different than that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think that is, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that, you, you know, and the three of us are all the same. Like we, we come from this place of white privilege, right? Middle class, um, white male privilege and all of that. And and that's the way that the Bible has been presented to everybody, you know, for such a long time. Um, but it, what, what I really appreciate about both of you is, um, the influence that growing up in Southern Appalachia, Central Appalachia, 
um, Southern West Virginia coal fields has on, e- even though you are in a place of privilege now, you know what it's like to be in an oppressed community, in a marginalized community, right? And so that's bound to shape your hermeneutic, I would think, at some point, right? And, you know, I think that honestly is what shaped Jesus. Jesus is not from a metropolitan area. He's from a rural exactly, town, yeah. a backwater yeah. village, a, a place where, you know, when you think about at the death of Herod the Great in 4 BCE, there's a revolt in the city of Sepphoris, four miles from Nazareth or so. You know that, I mean, it's very likely that that around the time Jesus was born, that village was affected, that they knew people who were killed by Rome. They knew people who were oppressed by the system, like Jesus came from a place. And so I think that that has to end up being a shaping influence. And it's not something I'm aware of a lot that, you know, the, how, where, how, where I'm from has influenced how I approach the text. Um, but I think that's probably true. I mean, I, you know, when you're from a place where, you know, you, you, and I, I was pretty sheltered as a kid. I didn't, it was, I was probably, you know, I, looking back now, it's almost like, you know, I, my parents let me watch the, the movie Grease when I was a kid. And as an adult, I look back, I'm like, they're far too conservative to let me watch something like that. Cause it's just <laughs> full of stuff I shouldn't have heard as a kid. Right. But when it's sort of like, now that I look back on people and experiences from my upbringing, I realize, Oh, I actually lived down the road from people who didn't have enough food to eat and had no idea because my context didn't. And so becoming aware of just where I'm from as an adult, Mm. I'm sure that had to have an effect. Yeah. Mm. Well, this is uh, man, this is such a good conversation. Uh, Unfortunately, we're coming close to the end of our time here. Um, But Josh, I, I, so appreciate your perspective and um, for, for you to spend some time with us here. Um, before we let you go, um, any anything that you're working on that folks should know about or how can people um, find, you know, the work you're doing? And I know you've got a great uh, newsletter. You've got a really active online presence with your church. So how can people find more of the work you're doing? Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I'm actually cooking up some things I can't actually talk about yet that I'm really excited about. So oh, I, I love a tease like that, man. <laughs> uh, if you want to stay in the loop, uh, the best way to do that is to sign up for my newsletter. And that's joshscott.online. You can go and read stuff. I, I haven't published anything new this, this year. Took January off to just kind of um, let my brain rest. But um, yeah, if you go joshscott.online, you can sign up for my newsletter. You can read all the past uh, entries I've done. And when I'm ready to announce, you know, when I have news to share about some stuff I'm working on, it'll come through that as well. Um, and then on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm Josh underscore a underscore Scott. We'd love to connect with you there. Um, and then our, my church is Grace Point. Uh, it's uh, G-R-A-C-E-P-O-I-N-T-E. Don't forget the It's Grace Pointy. Uh, .net is our website and our gatherings are on YouTube every Sunday at 1030. We go live. So that's it. Yeah. And and you've got a you've got a, a creative director there at Grace Point that um, musically a lot of folks might know of Derek Webb from uh, from the old Christian band uh, Cademan's Call is uh, part of your congregation there, right? He is. Yeah, he works. He's part of our team and um, does. Yeah, there's there's also exciting stuff coming from some of those collaborations that will be coming out. You know, people will be hearing hopefully later this year. So it's exciting. Very cool. Very cool. 
Well, Josh, thanks again for being on the podcast today. Brad, thanks for um, stepping into the co-host chair and doing a great job. Uh, always, always looking forward to these kinds of conversations. Uh, appreciate you being with us and uh, hopefully we can hook up again soon, my friend. Please. I love, love these conversations. Thanks for having me. Man, Brad, that was, <laughs> that was, we fit so much deep theology in about a, I don't know, 45 minute or so podcast episode. It's so great to hear from Josh. What, what, what did you think, man? Yeah, we did. I think deep being the key word and we touched on that, right? We're, we're, you know, a lot of folks think that, you know, progressive theology isn't very deep, that it tends to be shallow. I think Josh disproved that. Uh, yeah. Uh, just wonderful. And we didn't, we just scratched the surface on what we could have talked about uh, today. Uh, yeah. Just, but, but his whole, you know, the, that theology of human flourishing. Uh, I, I love that. And, and I think that is the central to our faith is, is that, and God, and uh, that, that's really God's vision for the world, right? Flourishing. Yeah, that that'll that'll preach, as they say yeah, in the holler. Absolutely, right? yeah, yeah, in the holler. That's right. <laughs> well, friends, thanks for staying with us and listening to this episode. Uh, just as a reminder, you can always connect with our community at accidentaltomatoes.com. And from there, you can find the links to all of our uh, social media accounts where we're always glad to engage. Uh, in conversations with you. Um, and as always, if you want to support the work we do here at Accidental Tomatoes, you can do that through our Patreon platform. Just go to patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes to learn more. Brad, thanks again. Excellent job as co-host. Uh, I, th I think I think this may not be your last time in the co-host chair. So. I hope not. I had a blast. It was it was fun, fun, fun. It was, it was great to have you with us. Well, so until next time, everyone, please keep on living outside the fences and join us again for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.